Hi, I'm Alex Brown, and welcome to Hooked on History. I hope you enjoy the show. In post-war Western Europe and North America, a revolution broke out. Created by an intellectual class and pushed along the mechanisms of capitalism, it was enthusiastically received by the population. Before even being fully understood, it was adopted into 1950s everyday life. This is the story of amphetamines, barbiturates, tranquilizers, and the psychopharmacological revolution. Now, it's hard to understate the drug-taking boom that took place in mid-20th century Britain. By 1960, Newcastle's population of 270,000 people were taking 200,000 amphetamine tablets per month. Even more startling, the hypnotic and tranquilizer barbiturate made up between 5 and 10% of all prescriptions throughout the 1950s, beating out other medicines like penicillin. Of course, there had been other periods of mass drug-taking in the UK, the huge consumption of opium and cheap spirits in the 19th century, for example. However, with the creation of the Nationalised Health Service and the subsidisation of prescription medicine, a unique position had come into being where, through their employees, the medical profession, this drug-taking was being done with the government's blessing. In fact, they're even footing much of the bill. Now, in order to explain the origins of mass amphetamine use, we'll need to go back a few years. Actually, we'll need to go back a few years and change location to Nazi Germany on the outbreak of the Second World War. You see, Germany had a few disadvantages over its Western enemies, principally in resources. Uh, this deficit was significantly felt in the cases of oil, rubber, and stimulants, where Britain and France had huge empires from which they could import naturally occurring stimulants like tea or coffee. Germany didn't have that luxury. So, in the interwar period, Germany attempted to make up for their lack of stimulants the same way they attempted to make up for their lack of oil and rubber. They started producing synthetic ones. By the outbreak of the Second World War, the stimulant the German military decided to adopt was sold under the brand name Pervitin. The active ingredient of Pervitin is now commonly known as crystal meth. And, well, it was a hit. Methamphetamine had bonuses beyond increasing alertness and banishing fatigue. It provided euphoria and managed depression. This helped the soldier get on with the mission instead of wondering why he was in a foreign country committing homicide. A report from a panzer division in Poland said of the drug, quote, Often there is euphoria, an increase in attention span, clear intensification of performance. Work is achieved without difficulty, a pronounced alertness effect, and a feeling of freshness. Work through the day, lifting of depression, return to normal mood, end quote. And of course, the nature of war itself also dispelled reservations one might have over taking meth. As one pilot would state, One wouldn't abstain from pervitin because of a little health scare. 
Who cares when you're doomed to come down at any moment? In all, methamphetamine would assist the German armed forces carry out the business of killing a hundred thousand Polish soldiers and, by the year's end, sixty thousand civilians. Quote, without any sign of tiredness until the end of the mission, end quote. And with this, well, for lack of a better term, success under its belt, in 1940, the German army and air force placed an order for 35 million tablets of pervitin, and production was ramped up to the point that 833,000 tablets could be pressed per day. In September 1940, with the German Air Force bombing the British Isles, a Milan Daily reported that the Germans were using a pilola di coraggio, or courage pill, allowing its soldiers uninterrupted operational capabilities. This article would apparently push the British into giving pharmaceutical strength stimulants to its forces. The British had been toying with the idea of giving its forces pharmaceutical strength stimulants for a while, but when they were eventually motivated to, the British opted for the less powerful and less toxic amphetamine in the form of benzodrine over methamphetamine. The British would also note the psychological benefits amphetamines had on the overstressed soldiers and would equip its forces every bit as zealously as the Germans did. In all, it's estimated the British armed forces purchased 72 million amphetamine tablets. And the list of nations issuing amphetamines continued to lengthen, and at the height of the war, across Europe and the Pacific, soldiers both sides of the line were equipped with amphetamines. A sort of global psychoactive arms race had been created. However, with the war's end, production didn't ramp down. Drug companies and their supply chains had swelled from the age-old practice of war profiteering. But the war had also increased the market for amphetamines. Due to their experiences during the war, a whole generation of military personnel were now returning to civilian life with knowledge of how to use amphetamines not only to cure lethargy, but also, more importantly, depression. Now, barbiturates, well, barbiturates became popular much earlier on. You see, throughout the 19th century, the vogue drug for coping with the hardships of the Industrial Revolution had been alcohol and opium. However, after the turn of the century, opium was being heavily legislated against around the world. It was getting a bit of a bad rep for it. Barbiturates, with their drowsy, antidepressive properties, handily filled the gap. It would become the family doctor's standard recourse in dealing with common symptoms from insomnia to anxiety and the vapors. By the 1920s, the brand names had become household names. However, in the 1930s, more experience and closer examination of the drug showed it to be problematic. The media started publishing statistics that showed an alarming amount of barbiturate deaths rippling through the middle class, causing it to come under stricter control and damaging its reputation amongst its genteel users. Now, this really should have been the nail in the coffin of this problematic drug, but 
as we know, in the 1950s, barbiturates were just as popular as ever. So, what happened? Well, in order to explain, you may need to know something about the Sieg cycle. So, the Sieg cycle is used by the kind of people who write academic journals to describe the career of a mood-altering drug. You know, first you get those positive reports from clinical trials and small-scale use, exciting medical professionals and causing sensational media coverage. This leads to the drug's adoption as the new, fashionable way of dealing with your negative emotions. However, of course, the drug does not live up to expectations, and with its widespread use, more and more negative aspects are discovered, causing its gradual decline in popularity until it disappears from medical use, only to be replaced by a drug on the beginning of this cycle. And so it goes on and on. But, an important aspect of this is the demand for a drug always exists. So, when barbiturates found themselves on the downward trajectory of the cycle, the populace and medical industry demanded another drug to take its place. Not, for example, regular exercise or other methods of helping to deal with insomnia or anxiety. As there were not many other successful hypnotics and sedatives around, Drug companies simply tweaked their formulas and produced a new generation of more potent, shorter-acting barbiturates with favorable reports and brand names stamped on them, and just like that, voila, barbiturates were back on the upstroke of the Sieg cycle. And the barbiturates resurrected themselves from the junk pile of disreputable drugs just in time for the Second World War, where it was not only used as a hypnotic and sedative, but also as an anesthetic. As a result, the already considerable barbiturate production also increased. In the meantime, psychiatry itself was expanding. In the 30s and 40s, British psychiatrist Aubrey Lewis pushed the field forward into a more scientific footing by adding a heavy reliance on statistics for diagnosis and treatment. This would have an important effect in bringing mild depression into the field's sphere of influence. In the post-war era, psychology was expanding into the everyday life, and issues such as boredom and depression amongst housewives started becoming heavily represented in mainstream media and psychology. In 1947, American sociologist Ferdinand Lundberg and psychoanalyst Mariana Farnham wrote in their best-selling book, Modern Woman, quote, The social development which has created the physical slum also created throughout society what may be termed the emotional slum, end quote. This emotional slum resulted from a progression into the modern world. The emotional slum was not linked to class, race, geography, or poverty, but presented a lack of psychiatric care for the private or home life. And drugs would increasingly be turned to to treat whatever conditions were found in this private life. This, along with the burgeoning illicit market, allowed pharmaceutical manufacturers to continue expanding production. By 1950, British, US and Canadian production was far beyond even the most generous estimation of therapeutic needs. In the US, for example, 
25 barbiturate and 10 amphetamine pills were being pressed annually for every American citizen. The two ballooning fields would combine to a greater degree than ever before into psychopharmacology. In this episode, we'll examine psychopharmacology's rise and the reactions of the medical profession during a period where their societal and professional role increasingly revolved around supplying drugs to the British public. We'll also discuss philosophical ideas surrounding drug use in this epoch by academics like Aldous Huxley, as his fictional predictions surrounding drug use started to bear fruit. to the physical treatments for depression that preceded and coincided with pharmacology's rise, it really isn't difficult to see why drugs were so enthusiastically embraced by the medical profession. The three main physical treatments for depression were insulin-induced comas, electroshock therapy, and lobotomy or, or lobotomies. However, these were obviously problematic. A course of insulin-induced comas could involve up to 60 comas, which was dangerous for the patient and costly in medical personnel needed. Plus, it doesn't seem to have even worked anyway. A lacotomy involved the cutting of the white matter in the frontal lobe. However, unsurprisingly, cutting up the brain carried heavy side effects. Patients became emotionally blunted and some underwent personality changes or became epileptic or, or became intellectually impaired. In all, 20,000 people became victims of lacotomies before they were phased out. Electroshock therapy pretty much does what it says on the tin. You strap some electrodes to the temples and send around 100 volts into the brain to induce seizures. Unlike the previous two treatments, electroshock therapy actually does seem to work, and is still used today. Although we still have no idea why, or how it works. One of those great medical mysteries still left to us. Carrie Fisher of Star Wars fame was actually an advocate of it. However, medicine has come a long way since the 30s, 40s, 50s. Modern electroshock therapy actually doesn't seem too terrifying. From videos I've seen, it looked like something akin to going to a dentist's office. However, electroshock therapy in this period was a was a far more brutal affair. Um, if if you want to know what it looked like, think of that famous scene from One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, where Jack Nicholson's character is punished by getting electroshock therapy. What's that? Conductor. Oh, that will do you. He goes into the room. Mr. Jackson. Open your mouth. This will keep you from biting your tongue. Oil. Now just bite They down strap it. him down, attach some electrodes to his head. Are you ready? And shock him for a split second. Here we go. And and this was actually true. Um electroshock therapy and the threat of it were used in psychiatric hospitals to control unruly patients. 
This sort of cruelty displayed by the psychiatric profession at the time is also displayed in how electroshock therapy was discovered. I like the way E. Dickinson describes it in his article, From Madness to Mental Health. It's, it's a bit dry, but this dryness perfectly captures that cruelty. Quote, Ugo Carletti, an Italian professor in psychiatry, got his inspiration following a visit to a slaughterhouse. The hogs were thus stunned before they were slaughtered. He experimented on a patient who had been diagnosed as a schizophrenic by administering 80 volts for 0.2 seconds. The patient stiffened, but there was no loss of consciousness. The team were discussing whether to give him another treatment the following day, when the patient, on hearing this, stated, Not another one, it's deadly. They administered a stronger shock straight away. End quote. Suffice to say, this was a terrible time to be schizophrenic. And regardless of its effectiveness, this treatment was too unpleasant and too costly to use on the general public. Of course, he also had psychotherapy. However, at the time, people were skeptical of its use, partly due to the length of time it took to take effect, but also because of the medical model, which dominated psychology and psychiatry during this time, which favored medical diagnosis and medical treatment over therapy or, or other soft-touch type treatments. Understandably, these physical treatments were only used in cases of severe depression. However, as I stated in the introduction, Throughout the 30s and beyond, psychiatry was expanding its scope of those thought to need medical help to people suffering from more minor depressive symptoms and anxious states. It'll take another 10 or 20 years, but the pharmacological revolution would handily fill this gap and work towards supplanting these controversial physical treatments. And this context is important in understanding why psychiatry adopted drugs so readily. A psychiatrist, Richard Hunter, saw this historical context is important to understanding the profession's reliance on drugs, stating, quote, The tendency throughout psychiatric history has been to practice psychiatry without psychology, which, in treatment, means attempting to reduce the mind by whatever means medical, and physical science have to offer." End quote. In a speech given before the Society for the Study of Addiction in 1956, he explained, quote, When in the 1920s the focal sepsis theory of ill-understood illness held sway, many psychiatric patients lost their teeth, their wombs, and their colons. When insulin was discovered and found to increase appetite, it was soon tried on mental patients whose illness was accompanied by inanition. When further experience, albeit accidental, showed that coma resulting from insulin overdosage was sometimes recoverable, psychiatrists hastened to subject their patients to a regular program of insulin overdosage. When by the 1930s brain surgery became safe, psychiatrists settled on a supposedly silent area of the brain, abolition of which would not leave gross neurological deficit to severing the thalamofrontal connections. Ellipsis. 
With these examples before him, what is the practitioner to do with a large group variously estimated at 50 to 75% of his patients, whose symptoms he's forced to recognize if only because of the refractinist treatment and the patient's persistence as having their origin in the mind or emotional life, but with which he's not equipped to deal with psychologically? The answer, of course, is drugs, sedatives, hypnotics, and stimulants. For this group of patients, not seriously ill mentally or physically, barbiturates have come to be used almost as a placebo, often to assuage the doctor's own anxiety. End quote. What he's essentially saying here is these drugs were playing the same role as the prior physical treatments. However, they were far less obtrusive. With psychiatry expanding the amount of people who need treatment, which general practitioners are not trained to deal with through time-consuming talk therapy, following this thinking, what else was going to happen but the prescription of tons and tons of drugs? And another thing which must be realized is these drugs themselves represented a massive jump in technology. The ratio between positive and negative effects were far greater than anything that had come before. Here's author Aldous Huxley in 1958 talking about real drugs becoming closer to his fictional one. In this book that you mentioned, this book of mine, Brave New World, uh, I postulated a substance called Soma, which was a very versatile drug. It would uh, make people feel happy in small doses. It would uh, make them see visions in medium doses, and it would send them to sleep in large doses. Well, I don't think uh, such a drug exists now, nor do I think it will ever exist, but we do have drugs which will do some of these things, and I think it's quite on the cards that we may have drugs which will profoundly change uh, our mental states uh, without doing us any harm. I mean, this is the, the pharmacological revolution which has taken place, that we have now powerful mind-changing drugs which, physiologically speaking, are almost costless. I mean, they are not like opium or like coca, uh, cocaine, which uh, do change the state of mind, but uh, leave terrible results physiologically and morally. And this is something that really should be appreciated. Nowadays, we are so used to having these types of drugs that it can be easy to take for granted what a massive jump in technology they were. Not only when compared to the prior physical treatments, but also the drugs that had existed only 30 years before. This is particularly true of the new tranquilizers, which would become the true workhorses of psychopharmacology. Huxley lays these ideas out more clearly in an essay he wrote in 58 for the Saturday Evening Post. Quote, In England, during the first years of the 18th century, cheap, untaxed gin, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two pence, threatened society with complete demoralization. A century later, opium, in the form of laudanum, was reconciling the victims of the Industrial Revolution to their lot, but at an appalling cost in terms of addiction, illness, and early death. Ellipsis. 
Do we have to go on in this dismal way indefinitely? Up until a few years ago, the answer to such a question would have been a rueful, yes we do. Today, thanks to the recent developments in biochemistry and pharmacology, we are offered a workable alternative. We see that it may soon be possible for us to do something better in the way of chemical self-transcendence than what we have been doing so ineptly for the last 70 or 80 centuries. Is it possible for a powerful drug to be completely harmless? Perhaps not. But the physiological cost can certainly be reduced to the point where it becomes negligible. There are powerful mind changes which do their work without damaging the taker's psychophysical organism and without inciting him to behave like a criminal or a lunatic. Biochemistry and pharmacology are just getting into their stride. End quote. Here we can really see the excitement in this new technology compared to the drugs people were using before, especially in the form of alcohol or laudanum, which had side effects that were far more egregious than these modern drugs. But also, these modern drugs could be far more specific in what they targeted. If we take Richard Hunter's psychiatric aim of reducing the mind. People have been taking drugs to do this for millennia. However, something like alcohol, for example, would produce an extremely broad range of effects, whereas these modern drugs could focus in on a specific aim with much greater accuracy, making them safer. And Credit must be given to the pharmaceutical companies for this stark improvement in the quality of drugs. And I highlight this especially since they're going to receive a lot of criticism in future episodes of this podcast for their shady practices. But excitement over these new drugs really shines through in the writings of some medical professionals. In 1961, the head psychologist at St. Thomas Hospital London, William Sargent, would celebrate the pharmacological revolution, writing, quote, When I first entered psychiatry in 1934, there were no effective treatments for depression, and, just as now, psychotherapy was showing itself to be a most uncertain and very limited form of treatment in this large group of illnesses. But in the past 25 years, one has seen what has amounted to a total revolution in treatment. He concluded, The provision of better and more varied types of long and short-acting barbiturates, all the amphetamine drugs, the new tranquilizers, the use of modified insulin, and when everything else has failed, a consideration of the most successful, new, and more modified forms of lochotomy, all such advances make the actual position today one in which there are very few cases of depression indeed occurring in good previous personalities. End quote. Now, I'm pretty sure he might be getting away with himself a little bit there. I mean... We obviously did not cure depression in the 1960s. However, 
we should be careful in general not to over-romanticize these drugs. While relatively speaking they were miles ahead of what came before, they still had major side effects, especially when taken habitually as barbiturates, amphetamines and tranquilizers were. Here is Kurt Vonnegut talking about his mother, who killed herself in 1944. The awful secret is that uh, my mother was crazy toward the end and we kept it a secret. She was all right in the daytime unless you tried to take her picture. Where well, you get a bizarre reaction at night, she would uh, really get wild, squaring people away and crashing around the house. And uh, that was barbiturates. Uh, these were supposed to tranquilize her and they turned her brain to cobwebs. Now, in a future episode, we'll get on to the side effects of, of this mass drug taking. But, in short, they could be quite large especially when taken as a total value. Barbiturates, for example, despite being prescribed for depression, were found to cause suicide ideation. However, during this period, worries over the immediate side effects and safety issues surrounding these drugs took more of a backseat to philosophical discussions on the long-term effects mass drug-taking would have on people and society as a whole. Tabloids would run editorial pieces with titles like How Can We Cure Pill Mania? and Drugs, Are They a Help or a Menace? Huxley, unsurprisingly, also cast a worried thought toward what all this drug-taking would mean for society. Quote, In view of what we already have, in the way of powerful but nearly harmless drugs, in view above all of what unquestionably we are very soon to have, we ought to start immediately to give some serious thought to the problem of the new mind changers. How will they be used? How can they be abused? Will human beings be better and happier for the discovery, or worse and more miserable? End quote. He would carry on to call for a meeting of biochemists and physicians, psychologists and social anthropologists, for legislators and law enforcement officers in order to decide, quote, in the light of the best available evidence and the most imaginative kind of foresight, what should be done, quote. And such ideas were echoed within the medical profession. A hesitant acceptance of the need for drug use and the profession's role in, dis in prescribing them ring out in their writings. Physician and pharmacologist Pond and Lawrence would conclude an article complaining about lax drug-taking thusly, quote, It is to be hoped that the discovery of a complete or absolute tranquilizer is an impossibility, for it is essential to distinguish between biologically useful and useless symptoms. The removal of fear, guilt, and anxiety under all circumstances would render man less than human. However, tranquilizers have their place as what H.G. Wells called doors in the wall to provide temporary refuge from acute stress, as all who have taken alcohol know. Aldous Huxley in 1954 has described the perfect tranquilizer 
as a drug, and this is quoting Huxley here, which will relieve and console our suffering species without doing more harm in the long run than it does good in the short. It must be less likely to produce undesirable social consequences than alcohol or the barbiturates, less inimical to the heart and lungs than the tars and nicotine of cigarettes. It should produce changes in consciousness more interesting, more intrinsically valuable than mere sedation or dreaminess, delusions of omnipotence or release from inhibition. Huxley concludes that we shall not escape the need for frequent chemical vacations from our intolerable selfhood and repulsive surroundings because most men and women lead lives at worst so painful, at best so monotonous, poor, and limited, that the urge to escape is, and has always been, one of the principal appetites of the soul. And back to the doctors. Although this may be true, it might be wiser for communities to start trying to alter the conditions of life to render the perfect tranquilizer unnecessary. For it will certainly be long in coming and may very well be a chimera and altogether unattainable. Meanwhile, doctors will do their best with the unsatisfactory drugs at their disposal to reduce the total of human misery. End quote. And this really highlights a, a trope in medical writings of the time that drugs were being used to plaster over societal issues rather than being a societal issue in themselves. And this does raise an interesting philosophical question of if we use drugs to cure human misery too much, might we lose the motivation to develop solutions to human misery that don't involve the drug. We can also see some doctors had a hesitant acceptance of their role in prescribing these drugs. And I guess what more can you expect from a doctor? The job is to minimize harm in the immediate, not to take into account all of society's needs, but the needs of their patient. And we can also see in that quote, through the comparisons to alcohol, doctors' acceptance of the need for what we would today term as recreational drug use. Now, this element of drug use being seen as, at least in part, a result of societal issues is, is really prevalent among medical journals and speeches during this epoch. In a speech discussing overprescription, read before the Society for the Study of Addiction in 1956, Dr. A. MacDonald would ask his audience, Are we really in need of something equivalent to Soma, that Aldous Huxley found so necessary for life in his brave new world? Before continuing, Is the blameworthiness of this limited to the doctor and the patient? Do the government and National Health Service or the pharmacist and the manufacturer and the advertising campaign share the blame? It is so easy to fold our hands and shake our heads over the stress and strain of life, the hurry and the worry. Are our maladjustments, our frustrations, our dissatisfactions with life due to the decline and influence of organized religion? 
which is blamed for losing or failing to maintain its ancient hold and the comfort and security this can bring? Is life in the modern community with all its amenities of theatres and concerts, of WTs and TV, of dance halls and cinemas, books and lectures, such a fiasco that we all seek some further escape from reality? Some in the public house, others from the pharmacist, a few in mental hospitals. End quote. Here we see modern society itself being identified as a reason for drug use. And MacDonald certainly was not alone in this line of thinking, especially when it comes to the supposed decline of religion. In a 1953 Guardian article, for example, a doctor wrote, It has been suggested that the broken home, the gangster film, the present insecurity, and the lack of religious and spiritual comfort account for our increasing crime. They also account for our craving for medical panseas, for our spiritual discomforts. Now, my initial reaction to this was just to put it down to religious moralism. You know, it's a trope we still hear today. Um, you know, people are turning to drugs and the world's going down the toilet because we no longer have the moral fibre religion brings. But we shouldn't be too dismissive of the link between religion and drug use. Religion plays a large role in giving its practitioners life meaning. And Nietzsche, for example, would use this to label Christianity as something people use to distract themselves from their problems and the problems of the world. He also accused alcohol of playing the same role, summing the link up in the famous quote, <clears throat> There have been two great narcotics in European civilization, Christianity and alcohol. And of course, Karl Marx would similarly accuse religion of playing the same role as drugs in distracting people from their problems when he declared religion to be the opiate of the masses. Now, links between religion providing people with meaning, or distractions, and drugs distracting us from the meaningless and ills of the world is well-trodden philosophical ground. I don't present this thinking to say that we should attribute decline of religion to the uptake in pharmaceutical use. I mean, that would be an impossible thing to prove, or at least I couldn't do that, and, and, and it's probably not true anyway. But these ideas can help explain why some saw the psychiatrist, family doctor, and the drugs they prescribed as replacing the societal role of the priest and religion. So let's go back to MacDonald's speech there. Now overall, this speech was an attack on pharmaceutical marketing. However, that's something we're going to cover in the next episode. What I want to examine is what this speech doesn't cover. In fact, what this speech is kind of excusing. That is, the doctor and the patient. And while we've heard a lot about doctors' theoretical opinions, and some definitely did think that overprescription was a problem, but 
why were doctors not doing more to stem what they perceived as overprescription? Now, the one thing that really rings out through the sources is doctor's exhaustion. Now, I don't know what experience you, dear listener, have had with drug addicts, but they're not the easiest people to deny their addiction to, middle class and genteel or otherwise. And it must be remembered, to a certain extent, that they are entitled to these drugs through the NHS. In that same speech, MacDonald will display this exhaustion, stating, I recently asked two busy, conscientious medical practitioners, they were partners, do you have any patients who come along and demand amphetamines or phenobarbitans or this and that? And when they looked at each other and nodded, I continued, what line do you take? The answer from the senior was, I look at the clock, at the length of the queue in the waiting room, sigh, and reach for an EC10. End quote. An EC10 is a, it's like a prescription pad, by the way. This level of exhaustion in dealing with the issue even comes across in their humour. At the end of a discussion on tranquilizers and drug addiction at the Society for the Study of Addiction, a GP, Dr. Leon Sherlaw, would joke to his peers that with the advent of longer-acting antibiotics, quote, I am eagerly awaiting the day when this activity will affect the tranquilizers and one tablet will remain active for one year. I shall then be able to issue a prescription for 12 tablets and hand it with these words to my favorite neurotic patients. Take one tablet every year and come back to me in 12 years and let me know how you're progressing. And that was a joke made at the Society for the Study of Addiction. This helplessness to do anything more than prescribe drugs was exacerbated by GPs not believing they could get their patients sufficient psychological treatment. In July of 1962, a British Medical Journal article stated pretty empirically that amphetamines were addictive. However, a month later, Dr. Wilson explained to the Daily Mirror, quote, General practitioners cannot obtain adequate psychotherapy for their patients. The prescription of amphetamine barbiturate mixes cannot be condemned, even if patients become addicted to them. And these were the medical professionals who actually felt like all this drug-taking was a problem. Otherwise, it seems that this level of drug-taking slowly just became institutionalized, even encouraged. In 63, Dr. Donald Blair described a hospital stay he experienced a few years back to the Society for the Study of Addiction. Quote, Following an operation, I was presented by the night nurse with tablets, which she told me I must take to make me sleep. I told her I didn't think I needed them, and felt I could sleep without them. However, she persisted, and said that as they have been prescribed, I must take them. For peace sake, I put them in my mouth, swallowed the water, but kept the tablets between my gum and my lips and recovered them after the nurse had gone to other patients to follow the same routine. Each night, the same procedure took place, and when I left, after being in hospital for about a fortnight, I presented the night nurse with all the tablets I had not taken, 
In fact, I had only required to take them on two occasions out of the fourteen. She was quite astonished. It is understandable how easily the compulsory use of hypnotics in this manner over weeks or even months can produce habituation and patience. End quote. Oh, I love that quote because haven't we just come full circle on the one flew over the cuckoo's nest references? Okay, for brevity's sake, I think we'll have to take a break here. But I hope you've learned something about the medical reactions to this drug-taking boom in the 1950s. Of course, the medical profession is a massive body of people, many of whom likely had their own complicated opinions that would never make it into the medical journals. As a result, we should not treat the profession as a monolith. However, from examining the opinions that were written down, we can see the medical profession's excitement in how useful these drugs were to them, especially when compared to the physical treatments that came before. Also, why the profession might think these drugs were needed. At the beginning, we discussed some of the origins of these drugs' popularity. In the next episode, however, I'll discuss the true pushers of these substances, the pharmaceutical companies and their marketers. transcript and references of this episode, please visit the Hooked on History website at hookedonhistory.co.uk. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating on whatever app you listen to it on. It makes a big difference in giving the series some exposure. Also, any donations would be hugely appreciated. You can donate on the website, hookedonhistory.co.uk, or at Patreon, at patreon.com forward slash hookedonhistory. If you have any questions or wish to contact me, you can do so at hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com. That's hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or on Twitter at, at history underscore hooked. I'd like to give a huge amount of appreciation to my brother Nick Brown for making the music and to Luke Ewer for helping make the website, and all my friends and family for their helpful feedback. <laughs>